Welcome. It's good to be with you tonight. I'm looking forward to continuing our journey in understanding biblical gender and sexuality. Uh, you may or may not recall that we're in the middle of uh, three related weeks where we're looking at the um, three traditional, I would even add the three biblical facets of sexuality by design. And so last week we talked about the erotic aspect. We talked about um, uh, the nature of our sexuality, how it relates to our bodies and how it relates to desire and how that pans out. Today we're going to talk about relational sexuality um, and then next week we will finish by talking about social sexuality or procreative sexuality. And we really need all three dimensions to understand um, sex in its wholeness as well as to understand the ethics that the Bible presents around sexuality. Today we're talking about the relational aspect. In other words, we're going to be talking about um, the marriage relationship and its design. Um, ultimately, that means that for the whole of tonight, we're going to be focusing on the concept of intimacy. But before we get started, we need to recognize right up front that there are other forms of intimacy outside of marital intimacy. Um, and uh, this, as we'll see, is a significant thing to be reminded of. But first off, the relationship between a parent and child is tremendously intimate. Okay. Uh, in fact, I think it's hard to wrap our head around a better paradigm or picture of intimacy than a nursing mother, right? Where a mother and a child are not just in close contact, but the child is actually being nourished by the provision of the body of the mother, right? It's a tremendously intimate relationship. Um, although our culture can often forget this, deep friendship should be a friendship of intimacy. Consider with me the relationship here between uh, David and Jonathan. And so this is from 2 Samuel, right after the death of Saul and his son Jonathan. Uh, and David is mourning the loss of both of them. And here he focuses on his friend Jonathan. And notice what he says. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. He elevates the significance of the relationship he has with Jonathan to being greater than the significance he had had in his own marriage relationship. Okay? Um, and so deep friendship is a relationship of intimacy. These other relationships, like friendship relationships, can also involve tremendous commitment, like marriage does. Consider here the words from Ruth to, his, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, you may remember that Ruth and Naomi are both widows, and because Naomi is a widow, she is returning to the land of Israel, to her people. And so she says to Ruth and another of her daughter-in-laws, go, be free, go find another house, husband, don't stick it out with me. But listen to Ruth's words here. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where I die, or where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now notice that last sentence. That's a vow, right? That's, that's her taking an oath. She is 
committing herself by vow to a close relationship with her mother-in-law. Okay? Obviously, just like we saw with David and Jonathan, this relationship is not a sexual relationship, but it is tremendously intimate. In fact, this is such an expression of loving commitment, I often hear it read at weddings. And it's important to remind ourselves that it's not spoken for a wife for her husband or one spouse to another, but if you can believe it for a daughter-in-law for her mother-in-law. But nonetheless, it is an expression of intimacy. And so uh, what we need to recognize here is first, there's other forms of intimacy besides marriage and that therefore marriage is not just differing in degree. Culturally, the way we think about marriage right now is that it is the pinnacle and the closest and even the most significant relationship one human being can have with another one. And so if you had a graded scale, you would put friendship and best friendship, and then marriage is the capstone form of intimacy. But as we already saw, the, bib, uh, the biblical impulse, what we see in David, makes room for, uh, for other relationships to be more significant. The second thing we need to understand here is that it's not that uh, marriage intimacy differs in degree, but that it does differ in kind. It's a unique type of intimacy, and that's the difference that we need to understand tonight, okay? And so, if we want to understand so, as we've made our gut reaction, we need to go back to Genesis, and so here, remember, Adam is in the garden alone, and God looks at his situation, and he assesses it. And despite the fact that every day of creation so far, God has looked at what he made and said, it is good, here he looks at man alone in the garden, and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit, or a helper suitable for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds in the heavens, in the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, and so here we see the establishing of the marriage relationship, and it is a relationship of intimacy, okay? Now, the type of intimacy, what we're trying to nail down here, I think is best labeled in the Bible's own words as one flesh intimacy. In fact, notice that in setting this out as the goal, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, there's a connection to the origin story of Eve, right? Eve was taken from the flesh of man, whereas Adam was made out of the ground. Eve isn't made a comparable part partner out of the ground as well, but out of Adam's own flesh. Adam recognizes the significance of that when he spots Eve for the first time. Bone of my bone, 
flesh of my flesh, right? The intimacy envisioned here, like I said, I would suggest is one flesh intimacy. But what does that actually mean? First off, we're not just talking about romance. Now, obviously, that is one of the unique aspects of marital intimacy as opposed to other forms of intimacy. It's the only one that is envisioned biblically as being a romantic relationship. On top of that, romance is clearly a part even of what happens here. Not just marriage as we think of it and experience it, but marriage as it's portrayed right here. Adam's words as recorded for us here, (coughs) this at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, in your Bible should be set apart from the paragraph of the text and put on its own. And the reason it should be is because translators usually put poetic portions of scripture all alone. So you see them when we encounter them. The prose, the narrative of the story here is put on pause and Adam, overwhelmed with a response to this woman in front of him, speaks poetically. And it's no surprise that poetry has been the language of love in all cultures and at all times. We don't just see this in uh, Genesis, but remember that the Bible's longest poem, also known as Solomon's greatest song, his superlative song, his song of all songs, is a song about the marriage relationship, okay? And so, and not only that, but that marriage relationship is full of romance. It's not mechanical, it's not constrained, it's effusive, it's full of imagery, it's erotic, it's all of these things. It is romantic. However, we need to recognize that this has been the reductionistic view that our world has taken on what marriage is. Marriage is ultimately and totally and fully about romance. Now, I don't know if you saw this film. I assume that most of you have not. Um, But there was a film that came out a few years ago called The Lobster. It was a satire and a dark one. And in the world of The Lobster, romantic pairings had become so important that if you were severed from your pairing through divorce uh, or, or through death and you couldn't find a spouse immediately, you would be sent off to a hotel with a bunch of other single people and you had 30 days to find a spouse or they would turn you into the animal of your choosing to up the likelihood of you finding a mate, okay? And so the main character says in the beginning of his stay at the hotel, if I don't make it, please make me a lobster, okay? Um, If you watch this movie, and again, it is dark, it is disturbing, but what you see is as these singles go around the hotel, they're regularly instructed in little dramatic skits at breakfast on the benefits of having a romantic romantic partner instead of being alone. For example, one of the sketches, sketches they observe, a man is alone eating at a table and he begins to choke. And since there's no one there while he's choking, he dies. And then they show the same thing with a partner eating breakfast across from them and of course she gets up, gives him the Heimlich and his life is spared. Not only that, but as they look around, they all have a very specific thing that they're looking for in a partner. They look at themselves and they all have a unique trait. In some cases, it's a lisp. In some cases, it's a limp. In some cases, it's a special talent, like good at singing. And they're looking for someone who also has that special talent because that will make a good pairing. Now, at a significant point in the movie, 
uh, one of the characters breaks out of that hotel and goes to live among the feral single people who have escaped their fate of becoming animals and are living in the woods, and they try and react to this romantic relationship by avoiding all romance whatsoever, and that doesn't go well either. Um, What happens, though, is an actual real relationship is formed, one that is deeper than just some shared trait, uh, and, and this relationship, because of the tension of this world, is pushed to the limits to the point where the main character has to decide if he's going to take on a new and horrible trait of his potential spouse or if he's going to abandon her. And it is an, in, an ending that Flannery O'Connor, who I mentioned last, last week, would love because it is a dark and rough picture. But ultimately, the lobster is recognizing our modern view of romance that we've been so reductionistic and we've elevated marriage to the point where everyone to have a good life must find the one, right? The one has become the primary pursuit in marriage. Uh, This viewpoint, again, suggests that there is one person out there for you, and if you don't find them, you will never find love. And if you don't find them, you will never be happy. Um, because marriage is that important. One of the things that I like to do when I assess modern concepts is test them against the reality of history, not how other cultures have thought throughout time, but just how most cultures have lived. And let's just recognize that this romantic view of marriage, that you need to find someone uh, who you have that spark, that chemistry with, that you find someone who, uh, you know, you... Uh, who is the one, denies the possibility of good and satisfying marriages to the majority of marriages throughout history, which were often arranged, which were completely apart from this modern new technology that we call dating. Uh, The question I would ask everyone is, do we really believe that the majority of marriages in the world were dead in the start, and it was impossible for them to find health or happiness or companionship fulfillment in what marriage is supposed to be just because they didn't have the the modern advantages we have of self-choice of these types of things can we even make sense of martin luther the reformer's marriage to Catherine? okay now uh you may not be familiar so let me tell you what happened with martin luther and Catherine. Uh, martin luther was a monk therefore he was celibate he was single He was pretty set on that, and even after the Reformation started and he walked away from the monastery um, and from Catholicism, uh, he maintained and continued to be single. What happened, though, was as the Reformation and the Protestant understanding of scriptures and all of these things started to ripple out through the European world, there were other monasteries full of monks and nuns who now felt the need to get away from their vow, to get out from the, under the thumb of the Catholic Church. And because the Catholic Church was so tied to government, that wasn't always easy. So Catherine was one of 12 nuns who were smuggled out in fish barrels and brought to Luther in Wittenberg, and they basically said, help us. And so he married them off one by one, but he came out one bachelor short. So he married the last one, and that was how he met his wife, Catherine. Now listen to his words about Catherine here and ask, ask yourselves if we have any room for this understanding today. This is what he says. He says, I feel neither passionate love nor burning for my spouse, but I cherish her. In fact, he had a habit of calling Catherine Hair Catherine 
because she ran the whole uh, estate, her brewery and everything. And so she was Mr. Catherine in the relationship. Um, but if you read the letters that he wrote his wife in his last few years of traveling before he's done, you discover a tremendous depth of relationship that we would deny ourselves the ability to learn from if we settle for romance being the sole and primary aspect of what marriage is about. For us, our culture sees weddings as the end of the story because it's really about that finding of the one that everything's about. Every romantic comedy you've seen ends with either the engagement or with the wedding. We very rarely tell stories about marriage, uh, people who are already married, unless they're stories of affairs on the side or of tensions within the marriage. Okay. When we say, and they all lived happily ever after, the story is over. On the other hand, Song of Songs, which I mentioned earlier, the wedding is not at the end of the story, but it's in the middle. And not only does the sexuality of that poem intensify after the wedding, but so does the depth of the relationship. Okay? We don't have time for it tonight, but I would encourage you just sometime to open up to the last chapter of uh, Song of Songs and read the woman's statement about her husband about midway through when she says, set me as a seal upon your arm and what follows. It is the climax of the poem, but that's a ways into their relationship. Okay? Here's another way that I like to think of how to critique this. One of the messages that we send about marriages and relationships when we have this romantic view of the one uh, is that we think that when we get married, we basically have a fragile vase of a marriage. It's beautiful and perfect, and we just need to make sure it doesn't get broken. Okay? But obviously, a much better way to think of a marriage is that you have a brand new baby marriage. It's totally alive, but it's also as immature as anything else is on day one. And so what happens is we set ourselves up for failure because when we find tension, when we find problems, we find difficulties in the marriage, we go, this is evidence that this isn't the one for me, and we walk away. Okay. In fact, Premarital Sex in America, a book that I have mentioned multiple times, shows statistically that the higher your romantic view of marriage, the quicker you are to abandon relationships in practice. Okay. And so it's important that we recognize that what we see in Genesis is romantic, but it's not nearly romantic. If we want to know what one flesh intimacy is about, it is more than just romance. It's also not merely about personal fulfillment. Another modern concept is that marriage exists primarily for my benefit. And so I'm looking for the spouse who uh, will give me what I need uh, and hopefully demand very little of me in return. Um, first, we need to understand that uh, biblically, as we've already touched on, a sexual relationship, as is envisioned in marriage, is not essential for a fulfilling God-honoring life. And so if we paint marriage as being the definitive aspect that determines if your life is tragedy or comedy, if we take on what, um, what Pastor Timothy Keller in New York calls the apocalyptic view of romance, right? There's an end-of-the-world crisis called find a spouse. Okay. If we take on that view, uh, then we're missing this reality, this reality that's embodied in Paul. This reality that's embodied in Jesus. In fact, consider when Jesus in John chapter 4 sends his disciples away because he's hungry. 
And then after talking with this woman at the well and leading her to understand who he is, the disciples come back, food in hand, and they say, Rabbi, eat. And he's not really hungry anymore. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Right? It's not that Jesus got slipped a sandwich by someone, you know, while the disciples were gone. He's found a deeper fulfillment, right? Okay? He's found a deeper fulfillment. Uh, but the problem with this is that no other human being can bring about total fulfillment. If you need someone who satisfies every itch and every need of you so significantly, you ultimately crush the other person under unbelievable expectations. I really like this passage from Stanley Grenz. His book, um, Sexual Ethics, is a very helpful one to me. And I love that he uses as a critique for this something that even people in open marriages understand about human relationships. He says, the concept of an open marriage, pause, if you're not familiar with the language, that's a marriage where the commitment is there, but the sexual relationship is open to other, other, uh, other people. The concept of an open marriage is correct in one point. It rightly reminds us that marriage was never intended as the vehicle of individual fulfillment. The romantic view of marriage, which is a relatively recent development, actually places undue expectations on this institution. By expecting marriage to be the instrument of fulfillment of the spouses, we doom it to certain failure. We ought not to look to the marriage relationship as the sole source of personal fulfillment, in so far as it serves as a reminder of this, the concept of an open marriage offers an important critique of the romantic view that sees in the marital bond the ideal of interpersonal relationships. In contrast to the modern romantic view, the Bible and the entire Christian tradition redirects the search for ultimate personal fulfillment from other humans to God as the wellspring and the fullness of life. No one person can ever hope to be the source of total fulfillment for another, for only God is our final resting place. As Augustine declared, a restlessness remains in the human heart until it finds its rest in God. Okay. So we have to watch out for putting undue weight on what marriage should be in this way. I need to see what's next. I don't think my notes are in order. Good. Okay. Um, Jonathan Grant also speaks to this in Divine Sex. He says, our most intimate relationships are looked to by each partner as a primary source of happiness and self-actualization and measured in the narrow terms of personal gratification. Am I getting what I need from this relationship? Does it make me happy? Do the benefits outweigh the cost? The assumption is that a relationship may last until death if it continues to fulfill each person, but to make a lifelong commitment at the beginning makes no sense. The cruel irony is that contemporary men and women view intimate relationships as essential to their personal identity, but they struggle to commit themselves fully to these same relationships. The reality is that our identities cannot be built on this inadequate notion of fundamentally tentative relationships. We can only find genuine personal meaning by making strong commitments beyond ourselves. He finishes, because relationships are no longer seen from a transcendent perspective, being more than this, they are divorced from any greater purpose than one's own personal happiness and intimacy. Now, there's a major issue here, even in that idea of intimacy, because when personal fulfillment is at the heart of our relationships, intimacy becomes impossible. Because the goal we have in the relationship is inherently selfish. 
and that is incongruent with the concept of intimacy. Martin Buber here who wrote a very interesting book called I and Thou, and what he envisions is how when we encounter this concept of God, we encounter the inherently other, the thou, right? Engaging with other people outside ourselves is a reminder that there's a world that's bigger than us, right? And so the whole book talks about this. But notice just this super insightful critique he makes here. He says, take the much discussed eroticism of our age and subtract everything in it that's really egocentric. In other words, every relationship in which one is not at all, not all present to the other, but each uses the other only for self-enjoyment, what would remain? If that's all there is, then what would remain is nothing. Instead, what's envisioned in the Bible, what we mean when we say one flesh intimacy, is I think especially expressed by the word to join together. Okay? It's a joining. Now, this joining, as it's laid out in Genesis, is very significant, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Robert Gagnon here uh, says, The sexual union of man and woman in marriage, of two complementary beings, in effect makes possible a single composite human being. So great is the complementarity of male and female, so serious the notion of attachment, and the joining taken that the marital bond between man and woman takes precedence even over the bond with the parents that physically produce them. Okay, so notice that contrast is in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There's a contrast there between the parent-child relationship and the husband-wife relationship. What what uh, Gagnon gets wrong here is just as important as what he gets right. And so I want to pause for just a second here. When Gagnon says here that the marriage of two makes a single composite human being, he is clearly overstating his case. Okay? In fact, his ideas here have a lot more to do uh, with this platonic Greek uh, concept that, uh, that we talked about last week than it does with what comes in the Bible. Not only that, but it smacks again of this idea of ultimate personal fulfillment, because if completion comes through joining with another human being in such a way, then what does that make you alone? Incomplete, right? Um, however, he does point out that what is formed here is so serious that it takes precedence over the parent relationship. Um, here, uh, again, in Genesis, the language is, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, here's what you can't see in the English unless you read your Bible very closely. Both the word leave and the word cleave are covenantal language. In other words, they're language we find in other types of covenant in the Bible, particularly God's covenant with Israel, as well as Christ's covenant, the new covenant with us. To leave and to cleave, those are the language of covenant, but... The word there for leave is the one that God uses as an accusation of unfaithful Israel who has forsaken, same word, forsaken him. It's a breaking of covenant. And so finding it in this context is surprisingly jarring. But even more than that, we're reading this today in a modern, I'll choose who I marry, individualistic, this is my life and my decision society. We have a tendency to forget what's going on here. 
this is where Bronson is helpful. He says, one of the elements of this verse that catches the attention of commentators is that the man leaves his father and mother. What makes this puzzling is that in most ancient Mediterranean cultures, sons do not usually leave their parents when they get married. Indeed, in any society in which agriculture plays a significant role, such a leaving can be economic suicide. Why? Because the primary wealth a family has is in the land itself. Okay. Sons stay on the land and work the land with their fathers. In many of these cultures, the marriage of a son simply means the addition of another room onto the house of the extended family. In other words, we can't read that passage in Genesis as being geographical in nature, that a man will move out, right, failure to launch style, move out of the house of his parents and start his own household. That doesn't make any sense, but there's more. While some commentators speculate that this language about leaving father and mother comes from an early period when society was organized matrilinearly, in other words, along the mother instead of the father, this solution bears no confirmation elsewhere in any of the antecedents of ancient Israelite culture, and it leaves the text oddly disconnected from its larger cultural and canonical context. In other words, when we look at the rest of the Bible, the patris, or let me use this word, the patricentricity of Jewish life is undeniable. Okay? The father being at the center. Okay? That's not the same thing as patriarchy. I don't like to use that word because we don't always mean the same thing when we say it. But patrocentricity, that's undeniable. Notice what he says, though. It makes more sense to recognize that what's already in view here at the beginning of 224 is the realignment of primary kinship ties. To put it in easier language, the forming of a new family. Okay. But consider this. Despite the fact that sons are still to honor their parents when they marry, the location of primary kinship moves from the family of origin to the new family constituted by marriage. Only such an interpretation can make sense to the reference of leaving. In other words, in a context where the men don't leave the families, in a context where the Bible puts a heavy weight on what you owe your parents, to say what you do is leave to cleave, is an overstated emphasis on the uniqueness of this new relationship and the precedence it takes over the prior one. Okay. Now, if any of you have been married for a long time, you know experientially what happens if you do not do this. But more importantly here, what we see is, again, this forming of kinship. When Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's talking about a literal truth. But he's also pointing to a marriage ideal, the idea of, again, being one flesh, of that forming of intimacy. And so it's a new joining that involves a leaving and then a cleaving. Okay. Joining, then, means a sharing of life, sharing of household, obviously, although I won't be able to say obviously for many more years because married couples who live in different cities is becoming a common reality in our jet-set world. Sharing of purpose or even destiny. Remember that Eve's provision for the it's not good that man should be alone is all about what it says in Genesis 1.28 when it says that man and woman, male and female, all being in the image of God are given a role to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. That's a shared purpose and destiny they now have. They have one goal and they meet it together. Of course, there's a sharing of selves. That's why Genesis 2 ends by saying they were both naked and unashamed. Right? That's not just a commentary on the fashion in the garden. OK? 
okay? It's a recognition that they were fully exposed, completely vulnerable, and yet without shame. There's a sharing of selves. That means a sharing of strengths and weaknesses. And of course, after Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, it also means a sharing of sin and shame. Okay. And so when we talk here about one flesh, we're talking about an entire joining of all that you are to another person and all that they are for a shared life. Okay. Now, that reality of the sharing of sin and shame uh, needs to be dealt with. It needs to be considered. We need to recognize, actually, that there's something about the marriage relationship in design that is especially equipped to deal with the presence of sin and shame in a unique way. Listen to the words of Winston Smith here. Every spouse has the opportunity to give the love of Christ to the other in marriage by refusing the shame and accepting that Jesus has forgiven us and cleansed us. When we know this to be true for ourselves, we can demonstrate that same truth in the way we respond to our spouse's sin and shame. Now pause. That's a broadly true truth. If you know forgiveness, you can be forgiving. If you know how God sets us free from shame, you can get out of cultures of shaming. You can do that with all sorts of people. But it's unique in marriage because of that intimacy. He says we can make it okay to talk about the things that we fear and the things that we're ashamed of. We can cover one another with the love of Christ. And sexual intimacy itself can be part of that acceptance and covering because sexual intimacy celebrates and proclaims God's love. Now listen to the language that he uses here. And notice that the phrasing he uses is exactly the most significant in the presence of shame. This is what he says. Sexual intimacy communicates the gospel when we allow it to say, you don't have to hide anymore. You may be uncovered. You're beautiful to me, you're clean, I want to be connected to you, and I'm not afraid to touch you and be touched by you. Right? In other words, we can say with our bodies a counter-narrative to what shame expresses, which is alienation, which is distance, which is hiding, and all of these things. And the marriage relationship is equipped with a sexual relationship that uniquely and physically expresses, handles this shame in a different way. He finishes by saying, in this very important way, we're made to give what we have been given. Not only that, not only can sex express and handle shame in a significantly different way within marriage, but the biological reality of sex is geared towards the cultivating of this whole intimacy. This is from Premarital Sex in America. The hormone oxytocin is released during orgasm in both sexes inside the brain. Oxytocin is involved in a social recognition and bonding, and it may also contribute to the formation of trust between people. It is the same hormone that is released during breastfeeding, which bonds mother to child. Okay. Now, if I remember right, that hormone is also present in the breastfeeding infant, okay, which is amazing. But what, what it's suggesting here is that uh, sexual intimacy itself reinforces at the brain level, at the biological level, this move towards sharing wholly, this move towards trusting one another. Okay, now obviously, as it continues, continues, mutually pleasurable sexual relationships generate more orgasms and more oxytocin and more bonding sentiments and tensions and emotions. It's not, obviously, that orgasms can't be had in uncommitted relationships. They most certainly can, but as they 
talk about earlier in the book, such relationships are inherently far more fragile than romantic ones. They can't be stable given what we know about sex, and you can bet that the women end them are far more often than men. Uh, sorry, that women end them far more often than men, not because they dislike the sex or perhaps even the partner, but because they can't tolerate the instability. No strings attached language is ubiquitous in contemporary sexual scripts, but it's largely a fiction. In fact, for most women, the strings are what makes sex good. Okay. So, biologically, we're cultivated towards this bonding, and what happens when you use it against the grain of its design? What happens when sex is existing outside of that commitment? Of course, it leads to bonding as well, but as Timothy Keller points out, if you have sex outside of marriage, you'll have to steel yourself against sex power to soften your heart towards another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you do one day get married. Ironically, then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and to trust another person. This is why, even though the narrative is serial monogamy until you find one for permanent, you're actually cultivating a habit of breaking and leaving. And why does our culture think you can just hard stop when you find the right one and now commit for life? We are shaped by our habits. And here we are shaped at the biochemical level by our habits. Now, I know that's heavy words for those of us who have been sexually active outside of the context of marriage for an extensively long time. But we need to remember that the same things that shape us can be unshaped by other and better habits. And so this doesn't destine someone to never have this intimacy in marriage, but it is a recognition that it's going to take some time to get there. Okay? So, at this point, We've been talking about intimacy, and I want to review very quickly what we've seen. Marriage, biblically, is more than romantic, although it clearly is that. And let me just add one more thing on that, because I forgot to mention this. We tend to assume that, that romance is what drives a relationship, culturally. We think it's a necessary element. In fact, if that element goes away, we hear people say things like, I just don't love you anymore. The thing is, that misunderstands how attraction works. Okay. How many of you have ever heard of Florence Nightingale syndrome? I'm sure you're familiar with the nurse, but are you familiar with the concept? Okay. Florence Nightingale syndrome is the observable reality that many people who are in long-term care by nurses fall for those taking care of them. Okay. Now, there's only two possibilities. Either that means, on average, Nurses are more attractive than other industries, right? Which Halloween might make us think that that's the case. Um, or there is something about the nature of that relationship that cultivates attraction. And that's obviously the way that it's supposed to work, okay? Love leads to attraction. It's not that there can't be a spark of attraction or even a spark of romance, but it'll never be the fuel of a good marriage or a full relationship. Whereas a loving and intimate relationship does persistently and consistently cultivate attraction. Which is good news because everybody in marriage gets older. Which, and that means that the person that you were initially attracted with is no longer there. Okay. Buried under cellulite and wrinkles maybe. But in a loving relationship, 
those who have gone the long distance testify to the fact that the attraction grows with it. Okay? So it's not just romance. And again, it's not just about personal fulfillment. Earlier, Jonathan Grant asked us to consider the transcendent aspect of marriage. And what I would suggest to you, again, is that that's a holistic joining of lives. Everything that you are with another person. That's also why when we talk about the two becoming one flesh, that's not a past tense reality that's over once the honeymoon's done. Okay? It is a future aspiration, an ever-deepening possibility of trust, an ever-deepening possibility of knowing more, of facing more in your life that you've never faced before and doing it together. It's a commitment to do things together as opposed to apart or even in agreement. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what's envisioned there in the garden, and that's what's expressed. Um, it's why Paul in Ephesians 5 can say, your wife is like your own body, and you love and nourish and cherish your own body naturally because it's yours. That's the closeness of this expression in relationship. Okay. So we've laid out what it is, but we haven't talked about what's required, and that's what we'll do after the break. And so let's go ahead and, uh, and take a break right now. Um, let's go ahead and take eight minutes of a break and then we'll do 10 minutes of Q&A and then we'll get started again at eight o'clock. Austin, right over here. Can you hear me? I just was going to see if you could say again about Song of Solomon. You mentioned something about the last chapter, and yes. I didn't catch what we were supposed to be looking for. Good. Let me, let me just read it to you because we have the time. I just need to grab my Bible. So Song of Songs, chapter 8. When I get the opportunity to do weddings, this is my favorite passage to share. And one of the reasons is because it's so unknown. And the other is because it mentions death. And I love bringing up death at a wedding. <laughs> so, again, if you go back to Song of Songs 6, that's where you find the wedding ceremony. That's where you find the vows. But then we have seven and we have eight and here in chapter 8, verse 6, we have um, kind of the climax of the song. It's here in verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. <laughs> 
Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now, what's so striking about this, uh, uh, this climax, in fact, it, it deals with some things we're going to talk about later tonight, is first, when she desires for a seal to be on her lover's heart and on her arm, that's the idea of ownership. The earlier refrain, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, now she's demanding of it. She says, I want you to belong to me, and not just at the heart, a seal on the arm, that's external, that's visible, that's a wedding band, right? That's the idea. But then she gives the reason. She says, love is as strong as death. Okay. Now, that sounds like a Lewis Carroll riddle, right? Why is a raving like a writing desk? What does death have to do with love? But the idea of death is that it is permanent and irreversible, right? It's, it's a, a permanent commitment that's being expressed here. And it says the same thing about jealousy here. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Jealousy is understood in the Hebrew, in the negative context that we often take it, but we also find it in a positive context. And every time it's in this concept of covenant. So we find spouses being jealous, and we find God being jealous of his people, but it's the right response to the significance of this relationship. But notice it says the flashes of it are the flashes of a fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, if you've ever studied the Song of Songs, oftentimes it's handled in what we call an allegorical way, which means this isn't really a book about a real man and a real woman or even an ideal man or an ideal woman. It's actually just a bunch of language about God and his relationship with his people. Um, for one, uh, pick up a hundred allegorical commentaries on the Song of Song, and they won't agree on anything. And that's the problem with allegory. It's tremendously subjective. But for two, it's unnecessary to do. Because here, after laying out the whole of marriage just on the, on the human level, it then connects it and says the spark of marriage comes from the very altar of God himself. Right? It says here that the, the flashes of fire are the very flame of the Yahweh, the flame of the Lord. And then notice, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. That's um, perseverance, right? That's what's being talked about here. And so that's where the marriage of the Shulamite and the beloved hits its climax. And it's deep into the maturity of their relationship, not at the beginning, okay? All right, other questions? That's Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. Any other questions? Good. I will take these three minutes then. All right. So, here's the thing. Our primary text for understanding what intimacy in marriage should be, defining one flesh intimacy, again, we have found in the context of the creation narrative, where none of us live. And so it's very easy to recognize the ideal of marriage and go, yeah, but how does that work? What does it take to get there? And, um, <clears throat> and so the question we need to answer now is, what is necessary for this one flesh intimacy to happen? What are the essential ingredients? What are the requirements? Okay. 
Uh, and the first one you might actually find surprising. Going back to Genesis here, when God says it's not good that a man should be alone, he tells us what Adam needs, and he labels it here a suitable helper, a helper fit for him. Okay. Now, we're going to come back and talk about that word helper later, but I do want to make something very clear right now, which is that a lot of times the way we read this word is like when we talk about mommy's little helper. Right? We see it as diminutive or derogatory. Uh, in other words, God is saying, you know what, Adam really needs a maid. Right? Like Neil Young thought women were for. A man needs a maid. Right? Um, that's not what this word means. In fact, this word ezer uh, is used most of the time in the Bible of God himself. Okay? God is our helper. Not only that, but it is military language. The helper, the Ezer in the Bible, is the one who shows up when the battle is raging fierce. It's the cavalry. Okay? The word here is very strong. It's one that God takes of himself. And so it does not turn woman into a servant or a slave. But on the other hand, let's just recognize that whatever this means, in some way Eve is a helper to Adam in a way that Adam is not a helper to Eve. We'll come back to that, but I just wanted to make that clarification so we don't hit a bump in the road. But what I want to draw your attention to is that second word, the little word in the ESV, fit, or in the New King James, suitable. Okay. Um, that word, uh, at a glance, uh, points to that some way Eve is like Adam. In fact, even in the context, that's part of the problem. None of the animal kingdom can be a suitable helper because they're not like Adam. In fact, even as we continue on, when Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh at last, it's partially that likeness that he's re representing. But the Hebrew word here is more complex than that. Okay? The word here is konegdo. It's a compound word. It's a word in two parts. And as we would expect, the first part here, K, this little article at the front of it, means to be like. Okay. And so part of what this word means is to be like, but the other part of it is what gives its full shape, and that's actually to be opposite of, or to be facing. In fact, this word neged, just the other part of this compound word, is used a few other times in Genesis, and it's helpful to take a look to see how they're used. Okay. So we find the word neged here uh, in Genesis 21, and this is talking about Hagar and her son Ishmael. Okay? And so it says, she went down and sat down, neged him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, neged him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And so neged, whereas K means to be like, Neged means opposite of, or, or as we see it translated here in Numbers, um, as facing. And so here, in Numbers 2.2, 2, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard. With the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing, that's the word neged, the tent of meeting on every side. Okay. So like but opposite, like but facing. In other words, implied in this one flesh relationship is what we tend to call complementarity. Okay. There is a fittedness 
between male and female in their design that defines the marriage relationship. But not just in you know, the overly simplifying ways we sometimes say, well, that's what the Bible says. It says male and female. It says Adam and Eve. In doing so, it defines an essential for one flesh intimacy. Um, we see these two words, ke and neged, konegdo, we see them even in Adam's statement, both represented. And so first, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's like, but then she shall be called woman as opposed to man. That's different. Okay. This is a suitable helper. And remember that Adam needs a suitable or a fit helper here is not incidental. It's not just a one-time occurrence, but this relationship is paradigmatic. That's why the next sentence says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's something about the suitableness of their differences and likeness that makes the one flesh intimacy calling possible. Okay. Now, obviously, there's a biological element to this. In fact, we'll talk about this next week. There is a biological complementarity that leads to the possibility of having children. Okay. But more than that, this similar but different is essential for this type of intimacy. Here's another very interesting read, engendered by a pastor in New York City by the name of Sam, Sam Andriatis. Okay is a book that he wrote after being in, uh, involved in what's sometimes called ex-gay ministries in New York for a long time. People who had left behind uh, the LGBT community and a gay lifestyle and even a gay self-identity uh, because of their belief in Christ. And so what happened is, as he was working with this ministry and supporting these same-sex attracted men in particular, many of them started to come to his church and some of them ended up marrying women. And so what he did to, dis to uh, write this book was sit down and interview these men and ask this question. What's it matter that you're married to a woman as opposed to a man? What's the difference in your relationship? You've been in relationships with men. You've been in relationships with women. Why does it matter? Why is this an essential part? And notice the observation he makes here. He says, deepening complement is only possible where diversity is present and appreciated. The more two people are interchangeable, the less they truly need each other. They do not come to know themselves in ways that change them. Thus, losing distinction consigns relationship to shallow water. Okay? If the similarities are robust enough, then it doesn't actually lead to the need of one another, the trust of one another. Instead, what we get is camaraderie, which is a significant and important aspect of friendship intimacy. Okay, in fact, Remember, or don't remember, because you probably have never heard it before, but this is how C.S. Lewis talks about friendship. He says, friendship is what happens when you're having a conversation and you go, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Right? Friendship is shaped by similarity. Okay. Um, but here, that becomes a hindrance to this full sharing because it leaves no room for, uh, for vulnerability. It needs no room for trust. And also, you notice it mentions here, it leaves no room for change. Being in a marriage with someone of the opposite sex changes you. It shapes you in a different direction. It doesn't necessarily make you less masculine or less feminine, but in some ways it does make you more 
of the opposite gender. It begins to grow you out of your weaknesses. It changes you in a significant way, and that's part of the design. He continues, if on the other hand, one brings to the union a unique specialty or an intent to develop something that the other does not, each will be prized more deeply. They learn that they do not need to look out for themselves. Okay? And so the idea that's being expressed here is that there's something about this goal of intimacy that is inherently cultivated by this unique difference. And again, if we uh, make women subhuman in some way, then it's not a suitable helper. Okay? There is a likeness here, both being in the image of God, both having a mind and a will, both having gifts that they bring to the table, both having a role in procreation and in ruling over the earth. But there's also a difference. And one that in the marriage design and in the gender parity is distinct and significant. Okay. Now you might be asking, well, what is the difference? We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to male and female. But the point is here that for this one flesh intimacy to form, complementarity is essential. Okay. This is a relationship of differences. Another thing that's essential is exclusivity. Exclusivity is, uh, is essential to one flesh intimacy. Although we do find polygamy, the practice of a man having more than one wife in the Bible, we see the original design here in Genesis is monogamous. Okay? In fact, if you can remember back to when we looked at Matthew 19, our very first week, and the Pharisees came and they asked Jesus a question about divorce, and he goes to creation and he says, this is the design. And they say, well, then why did Moses permit divorce? And he says, because of your hardness of hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. I think we can naturally make the same assumption about what Jesus would say about polygamy. In the beginning, it was not so. Not only that, but although we see the presence of polygamy in the Bible, we cannot find one example that can be held up as positive. Okay. Consider Jacob and his wives. Consider the language of one of the instigations of a night of sexual intimacy out of the mouth of Rachel. I have bought you with my mandrakes. You're mine tonight, right? It is a relationship of difficulty. It's a relationship of jealousy. Okay. Um, free love and open marriages tend to say that exclusivity is a limit on sexual love. Sometimes they illustrate with children. I can have multiple children, and I love them all equally but differently. Why can't I have multiple spouses? But there's something about the intimacy we're talking about that requires exclusivity. It's not a limit on the love. It's a defining characteristic that allows the, this particular type of love to be shaped. This is essential for two reasons. One, because exclusivity makes possible the giving of your whole self. Right When we talk about the two becoming one... That means that all of you and all of them come together. Again, it's not a 50-50 relationship. That's not what's envisioned. What comes is a greater than the sum of its parts reality, and that requires the whole person. Peter Kreef nails it on the head here when he says it's impossible to give the whole of yourself to more than one person. For you can give the whole only to the whole, and only an individual person is a whole. A group is not a whole. I know he's laying it on a little thick there, but just think about it practically. Can you give all of your time to two people? You must split it. And what happens in polygamous marriages? Obviously, you have multiple beds, and you spend multiple nights in one and not in the other. 
Uh, this is where jealousy actually comes from. It's a right evocation, wanting what Song of Songs says. I want you as a seal upon, upon your heart. I want all of you. I want you to belong to me. He says, you cannot give the whole of yourself to a group of two or more. If you multiply the recipients, you divide the gift and the giver. And a divided giver, a divided self, is a terrible thing, like a split personality. Okay? And so exclusivity makes the possible the whole giving that we talked about last week. Remember, marriage is envisioned as mutual self-giving. And the self comes only in one variety. It's not some assembly required. It can't be, you know, given in installments. It comes all, or it comes not at all. But it's not just about the possibility of you being able to give your whole self instead of splitting yourself between multiple recipients. It's also about recognizing and embracing the sufficiency of your spouse. Stanley Grenz, non-exclusiveness implies the willingness of a married person to share the deep intimacies of sexual intercourse with someone other than one's spouse, which carries the implicit suggestion the spouse is no longer as important as he or she once was. There's no getting around this. There's no way to say effectively, you are enough for me and you are not enough. Now, as we mentioned, there is a mistake that we make when we see marriage as being the, the sole place or the primary place of personal fulfillment. You don't just need a spouse. Adam didn't just need a spouse. He needed a community, and that involves brothers and sisters. It involves mothers and fathers. It involves neighbors and citizens and all of these other things. Um, but because marriage is geared towards one flesh intimacy, it involves that trust of basically saying, you are what I need, which also implies you and you alone. And so exclusivity is not an optional add-on, like when you pick up a car and you have the general model and then you can tack on an exclusivity policy. Okay? It is an essential characteristic that cultivates one flesh intimacy. And then the last one, which is related to exclusivity, it's basically just exclusivity progressively for the rest of your life, is permanence. Permanence is essential for the cultivation of this intimacy. We already saw that in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. Read it with me again. Set me as a seal upon your heart, a seal upon your arm, for his love is as strong as death, irreversible and permanent. Okay. Why? Why does permanence matter? Why can't serial monogamy work? Why can't you give yourself wholly and completely in the moment to an, uh, into a person and then shift and do it with another person again? One of the reasons is because permanency creates security. Okay. This is actually personally my most profound favorite thing about marriage. The one that I didn't expect or didn't understand. When my wife and I committed ourselves to us till death do us part, it gave me the ability to face really hard things knowing that at the end of them I'd still have a wife. It gave me the possibility to expose even the worst parts of myself knowing that it wasn't putting the relationship itself at risk. Okay? In fact, without this security, inherently the sexual relationship within a marriage relationship becomes economic in nature. Without this upfront permanent commitment, sex becomes a commodity. One that is priced and exchanged and used and given uh, for particular ends. 
again, from premarital sex in America, okay? So we saw in an earlier quote that for a lot of the women, the, the strings are what makes sex valuable. And so the question is, why then do unmarried young women have sex? While there are literally hundreds of reasons that people have sex, and a pair of our colleagues here at the University of Texas recently documented 237 of them, the pursuit of pleasure, of course, is often part of the equation. But it's not the sole or primary motivation among most. Sexual economics theory would argue that sex is about acquiring valued resources, at least as much as it is about seeking pleasure. When most people think of women trading sex for resources, they think of prostitution and money as the terms of exchange. But this theory encourages us to think far more broadly about the resources that the average woman values and attempts to acquire in return from sex. Things like love, attention, status, self-esteem, and affection, commitment, and feelings of emotional union. Within many emerging adult relationships, orgasms are not often traded equally. Stacy, a 20-year-old from Missouri, says she's never experienced an orgasm with her current partner, who's not her boyfriend. But intercourse with him, quote, makes me feel sexy, like almost confident. And so the idea here of sexual economic theory is that effectively men trade things like security or provision or, um, uh, or here uh, uh, attraction or these types of things for sex, and women trade sex for those things. Now, what I'm suggesting to you is not that that's the way that sexual relationships should work. I'm suggesting to you that it's the only way it can work without permanence. That this is what sexuality has divulged into because the permanence isn't there. It becomes a good to be exchanged, okay? It isn't that modern folk don't need or aren't looking for security. But the way that we go about it as human beings in our time is new and it doesn't work. Security requires permanence, and most people know that, but most people think what they're looking for in a relationship is not security. They find that elsewhere, um, again, from premarital sex. So what is that hidden deep underneath the thrill of the chase, the endless conversations among friends, and the relatively rapid consummation of relationships? We suggest there lies a very human desire to matter and a quest for security the problem is that we've purchased the expensive idea that security is found not in human relationships, but in personal accomplishments and appearances. In other words, traditional societies found security in established and given relationships. But we base our security on merit. So we earn it in the workplace, or we earn it in the bedroom, or we earn it in the meat market of relationships, or these types of things. We're not defined by the people's relationship to us, but as it says here, our accomplishments and appearances, and it doesn't work. And so, what I'm suggesting to you is that security comes from this upfront offer of permanence, and that security is the fertile soil that deepening intimacy grows in, because what does it require? It requires vulnerability. But as soon as performance makes it into your relationship, there's no room for vulnerability because you've got to meet your metrics. And that can be true in the bedroom and it is definitely true in the modern sexual ethic. That's why Dan Savage gives advice and basically says if you're not sexually satisfied in your relationship, that's grounds for divorce. Now, 
let's think a little bit more about what this does. The reason why I say this is it's not just that it's necessary for security, but we need the security because that brings about vulnerability. Okay. And permanence is necessary for that vulnerability. It gives you the room to mess up, to be less, to fall short, to fail, to forget, to these types of things. It gives room for you to expose the worst parts of yourself, your weaknesses. And also, and this one's a little counterintuitive, but permanence cultivates freedom. And like I said, that's counterintuitive. Consider the modern concept of settling down. Have you ever thought about what that phrase suggests? That real life, that the active part, that the wild part, that the good part happens before you get married, and now you leave that behind for something less, right? In fact, that's the general way we think of freedom. Any limitation on freedom, any time we have to say no, so I'm now committing myself to one person instead of the potentiality of all people, or many people collectively, we think that we have somehow limited uh, freedom, okay? But permanence is necessary for true and fulfilling freedom. Stanley Grenz again. The constructive nature of the biblical sex ethic may be seen through the consideration of the link between the permanency of the relationship and personal freedom. The biblical emphasis on marriage as a permanent commitment is helpful in that the permanence in it enjoys provides the freedom to the marriage partners to develop true community. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the difference between um, organismic congruence and telic congruence. Organismic says this is who I really am. If I express it, I will feel full, total, complete. Telic says this is what I want to become. And that changes how you respond to impulses. It changes how you respond to challenges. It's the reason you go to a gym if you want to be an Olympic gold medalist. Okay. And so here the suggestion is that the permanency gives the room, the freedom to develop the fullness of what marriage should be. Again, marriage shouldn't be seen as a fragile vase that's perfect day one, but very, very sensitive. But a brand new baby that's totally alive and completely immature. My father-in-law gave me the talk after I asked my wife to marry me. He took me out to the garage, flipped over a couple of five-gallon buckets. We had a seat. He pulled out his reading glasses and some handwritten notes. And I don't remember a lot of what he said. I was immature and arrogant and felt completely awkward. But, but one thing did stand out to me and I've never forgotten. He said, son, for me and Brittany's mother, divorce has never been an option. And he says, to be honest, I can't imagine starting over with another person. He got it. He understood that he had a 20-year marriage and that you can't just get that overnight again. And so, in this sense, then this permanence gives room for the marriage to grow. Let me point out an obvious thing that we need to be reminded of in the church. Marriage, in its concept, does not achieve its fullness just when your babies leave the house. What do we think about, as Christians, empty nest marriages? Over? Retired? No, it is another layer and level of possibility for deepening and cultivation. One flesh intimacy is uh, like fractal geometry. Every time you understand a layer of it, you zoom in and you find another layer. 
my wife and I just had one of those conversations, the one that is defining and significant and certifiably one of the darkest conversations of our marriage. We've been married for 14 years. We came out the other side of it, uh, not just with relief that it was over, but with an amazing excitement about what is to come. Because ultimately, our problem was that we had settled for the marriage we had. And there were certain things that we just closed off, hermetically sealed, and just said, well, that's not really a part of it, but we like what we have. And the truth is, you can't do that. Things fester. And so they were impacting our marriage, and that's why we ended up talking about them. But my wife asked me this morning, she said, it seems like we do this every seven years. And she said, can we just skip it at 21? Can we just bypass it? And I said, I would never choose that. I would never choose that because what we're doing is hitting a ceiling. But it's a false ceiling. And there's more depth to be available. That requires permanence. It requires in it for the long haul. And not just for the level of commitment and security, but because building a deep, intimate relationship takes time. It's a day-by-day -day, uh, reality, okay? Um, but this freedom... It also gives freedom for anything that happens within the marriage to just be a little thing instead of a big thing. Um, here, uh, there's, let's see, we're going to talk about that later, so I'll skip it. Um, here, another really interesting book. So, Sex Difference in Christian Theology by Megan DeFranza. I don't agree with all of her conclusions, but her, her goal in this book is compelling. She said, can we rethink male and female and do it in a way that doesn't dehumanize the intersex, those who find themselves with ambiguity in their sense of gender biologically, which I think is a compelling thing, and she draws out a lot of good things, but notice what she says here. She says, McCarthy explains, through any given sexual act, spouses might express love, desire, generosity, frustration, fatigue, or manipulative intent, but they will do so in the semantic context of a day, a week, a stage of life, and a series of specific events, and all set within the broader context of a shared life. Any particular sexual encounter need not say anything earth-shattering. It need not point to the fullness or the full meaning of a sexual relationship. We need not be completed by our sexual complement. Most sex within marriage is just ordinary, a minor episode in a larger story. One set of sexual expressions may need to be redeemed by another, and can be. Listen to this. One night stands and passionate affairs, in contrast, need to be earth-shaking and splendid because they are the whole story. They are manic attempts to overcome the fact that there is nothing else. And so it gives freedom, again, for things to be measured in a long and winding context instead of being so myopic. The true superiority of sexual intercourse in marriage is that it does not have to mean very much. Expressed sexually or otherwise, our humanity is something that accumulates quietly through small steps and comes to us as a whole only when we step back in order to look back and imagine the future. Now there's another point here. It doesn't just, this exclusivity and permanence in marriage doesn't just give you freedom in the context of that marriage. It also gives you freedom outside of it. It frees you up for relationship with others because they are non-sexual. Okay. One of the things that is really significantly impacting our human community in the modern world is since every relationship is potentially sexual, 
It leaves no room for non-sexual intimacy, which you need as a human being. You need friends of the same sex and of differing sex. But the potential of a sexual relationship is an elephant in the room that hijacks and hinders the possibility of those things. And again, let me remind you that it is loving not to have sex with everybody. Okay. And so here it leaves that room okay, uh, so that you can cultivate relationships with others. And this is another place where the church has a tendency to go awry. Because we see marriage as the end-all, be-all, and we sever it off from the rest of community. And I'll tell you what, from being around young marrieds for the last 10 years, we condemn marriages to serious struggles when they believe the best thing they can do in their relationship is sever all ties and go try and figure it out on an island. Okay. Instead, they need the full commitment of the community to see their marriage flourish. They need friends and family members. They need the total of what God offers us in the community, as we will see next week. The it is not good has not become good just because Adam has Eve. It's not finished yet. There's more that's necessary, and that is society. That is community. It is more than the family. More on that next week. Again, when we don't have this freedom of permanency, sex becomes about performance instead of intimacy. It becomes a way to prove or validate your role in the relationship instead of this mutual self-giving that we talked about last week. But what do we mean here when we say that for this to work, it requires permanence, exclusivity, and complementarity? Really, this is just a description of the idea of the covenant. Really, all we've said so far is that the way that this one flesh intimacy is shaped is in the covenantal relationship of marriage. Although Genesis 2 doesn't use the word covenant, leave and cleave, as I've already mentioned to you, uh, here are covenantal language. It's used extensively uh, of God's covenant. Okay, so for example, Jeremiah is very much one of the prophets of the covenant. In fact, he, along with Ezekiel, is the one who introduces us to the new covenant, this new thing that God inaugurates in the Last Supper through Jesus Christ. Remember when we take the cup? This is the new covenant in my blood. But he also spends a lot of time talking about how Israel has been un excuse me, unfaithful to their covenant with God. Notice what he says here in chapter 5, verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have left me. Same word from Genesis 2. Forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the house of horrors. Do you see the correlation there? They have forsaken him, which is a form of spiritual adultery. They run parallel here. It's their lack of exclusivity that has broken the covenant. Again, a few chapters later in chapter 16. Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. In fact, it's explicit here in 22.9. And they will answer because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. And so leave is covenantal language. So is cleave or to cling. Here is the literal book of the covenant. That's what the Bible calls the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? And notice what it says here. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. That's the same word that's used of Adam and Eve. And by his name 
you shall swear, and again in chapter 11. For if you will be careful to do all the commandments that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and clinging to him, holding fast to him. Okay. Now, on top of that, later passages do refer to marriage as a covenant. Okay. Consider here in Proverbs chapter 2. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Adultery is forgetting the covenant. Now, notice it says the covenant of her God here. It's at least possible that the author of Proverbs here is talking about the broad covenant of Israel, which, remember, includes you shall not commit adultery. But I would also suggest that, uh, that the idea here is not, um, not merely that, but actually talking about seeing marriage as a covenantal relationship. Okay. Uh, and then Malachi just plain makes it explicit. But you say, why does he not accept our sacrifices? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by what? By covenant. Okay. So what is a covenant? We mistake oftentimes a covenant for a contract. And there is some similarities there, right? A contract involves a commitment. It involves some sort of public and publicly accountable act, like the signing of a contract, right? But here's where they differ. Where they differ. A contract is an exchange of money for goods and services. A covenant is an exchange of loyalty. Okay? In fact, we can see this in God's covenant with Israel. Here is where the covenant effectively begins with Israel. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Pause. Notice the covenant with Israel is based on an earlier covenant with the patriarchs. Okay? The, the covenants in the Bible build upon one another. They grow and expand. Okay? But here's what's most important. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So notice there's a whole lot of things God promises to do, services that he's going to provide. And there's also responsibilities that are put on the other side. He doesn't just say, I'm going to set you free and leave you to your devices. It's an exchange of masters. No longer will you be subservient to Pharaoh, but you will be subservient to me. But more than that, its pinnacle is, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. Okay. Do you see how this language is exactly the same as what we saw in Song of Songs? I am your God, you are my people, my beloved is mine, and I am his. It's because they're both 
covenantal. In other words, like I said, a covenant is an exchange of loyalty. It's the commitment to the full giving of yourself, not your talents or your goods or your services. Marriage is not reduced down to that Paula Cole song uh, where she talks about where have all the cowboys gone? And she suggests, I will do the laundry if you pay all the bills. Right? It's something deeper than that. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, an exchange of goods and services, but an exchange of selves. Okay? So, covenants are inherently exclusive, permanent, and complementary. The covenant that God makes with Israel, there's only one who plays the part of God. And only one who plays the part of the people. And those are not mutually the same thing. Nor are they exchangeable. In fact, just a side note, and then we'll come back to this. But when God evokes relational imagery for who he is, oftentimes he does so in irreversible relationships. God is always the father, and sometimes motherly, never the child. That's us. God is always the husband, never the wife. That complementarity is part of our relationship with God, him as God and us as his people. Now, again, when we think about this and we go back to that idea of how sex, the sexual act, works in marriage, in that way, sex is kind of like a sign of the covenant. Every covenant that God makes in the Bible has a sign. The covenant he makes with Noah to never flood the earth again has a rainbow. The covenant God makes with uh, Abraham has, uh, has circumcision. The covenant God makes with Israel has the land, right? They're visible, tangible representations. Effectively, what I'm saying here is uh, that sex in marriage operates like the sacraments in our relationship with Christ. We have both baptism and communion, and they both are public professions of this relationship. One uh, is the beginning of our relationship. The other is an ongoing expression of that. In that way, we could say that the two uh, sacraments of marriage are the wedding and the sexual act, okay? like baptism and communion. But I want to be clear here. I am not suggesting that marriage or sex itself is a means of grace. If you grew up Catholic, you know that Catholics believe in seven sacraments. We as Protestants only hold two, the two things Jesus told us to do. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and do this in remembrance of me. But one of the ones that's on the list for Catholics is marriage itself. Marriage is a sacrament, and the reason they come to that conclusion is because the Latin translation of the word mystery in Ephesians 5, this marriage reality, husband and wife, Christ and the church, is a great mystery, is sacramentum in Latin. So they go, oh, look, this is also a sacrament. But we also need to watch out for, for seeing um, sex as a means of grace. Okay. Grens here. The sex ought not, not, ought not to be viewed as a means of grace understood in terms of the marriage itself. As important as it is to the ongoing function of a good marriage, sex alone cannot infuse vitality into an ailing relationship, nor can sex be the glue which holds a marriage together, as some people mistakenly believe. Uh, in other words, it's not, it's not a good sexual relationship that makes a good marriage. But because sex is about intimacy, it's a good marriage that makes a good sexual relationship. Paul Tripp points out that sex can never be the fuel of a good relationship. It's the fruit of one. 
In fact, he points out that it's impossible not to drag the character and quality of our relationship into the bedroom. Because what is it? It's a moment of nakedness and vulnerability. And so if your spouse is usually selfish, what do you expect in the bedroom? Selfishness. If they're usually vindictive, then you carry that into the bedroom. So what we're saying here is not that sex operates as a means of grace, a way of infusing. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that uh, sex metaphorically signifies and seals the covenant. If that sounds like careful language, it's because it is. It's the language that the reformers have used to talk about what the sacraments are. The sacraments signify and seal our relationship with Christ. Gren's here. Um, Within the marriage relationship, sexual intercourse functions in a manner analogous to the Christian understanding of sacramental acts. The rites of baptism and the Lord's Supper signify and seal the covenant of a believer with each other and with God. In somewhat analogous way, the sex act is meaningful as it signifies and seals the marriage covenant. More specifically, analogous to participation with the Lord's table, communion, which reaffirms the covenant made in baptism, participation in the sex act is a reenactment of the wedding vow. Okay, and so in marriage, in vow, we say, I belong to you. And the other person says, I belong to you. And in the sexual act, we embody and renew and re-express that same reality physically. And so when we say here that it is the, um, the sign and the thing that, uh, that it signifies and seals, the idea is it both is a perfect picture of what marriage is. And we get that right from Genesis 2. The two shall become one flesh. When we try and envision that as an image, the sexual act is what we think of, right? Um, But more than that, it also seals or reseals the relationship. Timothy Keller, again, is very helpful. According to the Bible, sex is God's created an ordained way for you to say to someone else, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And you mustn't use sex to say anything else because that's what it was created for. And you can only say that to somebody you're married to. Only if you're married is it true. And actually, only if you're married can you be sure you mean it. And once you're married, then the sex, then sex becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. In other words, you are recommitting yourself. You're doing with your body what you've already done with your whole life, which is you've made yourself vulnerable to each other and you've given yourself completely to each other and now you're doing with your body what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Sex says symbolically in a single act what marriage says is in in its entirety, I belong to you. And so now we have a better understanding of what's envisioned in this relational sexuality. The two becoming one flesh, a growing and deepening intimacy, which is just another way of saying a growing and deepening vulnerability and dependency. A sharing, a joining of lives, a giving wholly of self. Now we're ready to ask the question, what is it about? What does this say about the image of God? Why did God make marriage and sexuality in this way? The first reason is because the deep, intimate, one-flesh relationship tells us something about God himself. The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is a community of perfect intimacy, complete and total sharing, full and holistic mutual self-giving. In fact, that's where I got that language from, was a book on the Trinity. Okay. That's theologian talk for, when, for dri- describing the uh, intimacy. 
But the place that it's easiest to see this is in the Gospel of John. Here, Jesus just comes out and says, I and the Father are one. Oneness is what we're talking about. But notice as he expands on this a little bit later what that looks like. He says, uh, for context, since we're mid-sentence there, if I'm not doing the work of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, the work of my Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I and the Father are one. That's a sentence you can swallow. But what does Jesus mean here when he says the Father is in him and he is in the Father? He brings it up again later. He asks the disciples. These are the ones who say, show us the Father, Jesus. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or less, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay. And so what we see here is this coexistent, hard to geographically understand reality that Jesus is trying to paint. That he is in some way in the Father, and the Father is in some way him. Uh, in him and those who have studied such things have realized that that's not a static reality but an active one that there's a flowing into and a working in and out of and they've labeled this with a nice fat theological term perichoresis okay now perichoresis if you go looking for this you'll hear a theory on the origin of this word related to a greek dance that involves not two but three partners and because it involves three partners there's a constant interweaving of the people involved always in motion always face to face and then rotating in and out and as far as i can tell that's just something some guy made up and we all believe there doesn't seem to be any semantic contact with any greek cultural practice in this word um, however, it is a decent picture, and if we want to understand it here, uh, we have to chew on the words of Jürgen Moltmann, and let me tell you uh, that Jürgen Moltmann's words are not easy, so we're going to read it twice. He says, an eternal life process takes place in the triune God through the exchange of energies. The Father exists in the Son. The Son and the Father, and both of them in the Spirit, just as the Spirit exists in both the Father and the Son. By virtue of their eternal love, they live in one another to such an extent and dwell in one another to such an extent that they are one. It's a process of most perfect and intense empathy. Precisely through their personal characteristics that distinguish them from one another, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell in one another and communicate eternal life to one another. Now, it's that last sentence I want to draw your attention to. What does he say cultivates this intimacy? It's the sharing of their uniqueness in one that makes it. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but they are all God. In fact, I love this. Have you ever considered the fact that the labels that God has chosen for himself in the Trinity are referential to other members of the Trinity. 
we know God the Father as our Father, but ultimately he has only one only begotten Son. What makes him the Father? The Son. In the same way, what makes the Son? The Son. The Father. Their relationship defines their identity. Not only that, but the Spirit is simultaneously referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. It's referential. But notice here that just like we talked about in the intimacy in marriage, complementarity is an essential part. Father, Son, and Spirit together, I in Him and Him in me. Okay. Now, let's take a running jump and try and read it again. An eternal life process takes place in the triune God through the exchange of energies. The Father exists in the Son. The Son and the Father and both of them in the Spirit, just as the Spirit exists in both the Father and the Son. By virtue of their eternal love, they live in one another to such an extent and dwell in one another to such an extent that they are one. It's a process of most perfect and intense empathy. Precisely through the personal characteristics that distinguish them from one another, the Father and the Son and the Spirit dwell in one another and communicate eternal life to one another. Now, we're not done. And the reason is because the Bible doesn't end there. It doesn't just express that marriage is an expression of this one flesh intimacy that already exists in the Godhood. It's also an invitation to enter into that intimacy with the triune God. And that's not my conclusion. That's not the words of Mr. Moltman. That's the words of Jesus himself. Okay, I can't skip that sentence. In the perichoresis, the very thing that divides them becomes that which binds them together. Can you just scratch out perichoresis and say in, in the ideal marriage? That's what we're talking about in one flesh union. But moving forward, listen to Jesus' words in John. Now, did you notice as I moved through John, we were moving forward in the story? We started in chapter 10, and then we moved into chapter 14, and now we are in chapter 7. This is the culmination of Jesus' teaching, the high priestly prayer that ends the upper room discourse. What comes next is the cross. But I want you to notice that he takes this language that's been growing and he finds you in the midst of it. He says, I do not ask for these, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Side note, that's you. Jesus is praying for you right now. Those who would come to believe in the words of the apostles as recorded in the New Testament, and what's his prayer? That we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says here, the plan and the purpose of salvation is to extend that divine intimacy and make you a participant in it. So that Christ would be in you and you would be in Christ. So that you would become a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter puts it. So that you would have a place of eternal and total intimacy with the God who made you. And so the marriage relationship, again, operates as a picture. And more importantly, it operates as an invitation. God's trying to say through marriage and its design what it is about himself that he invites us into, the relationship he has and desires for us. All right, let's pray.
Father, we are relational as human beings. We're social in nature. We need other people and we're designed for other people. And that's part of what it means to be created in your image because you are a relational God, the God who is community, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who is love. And so you've made us for love. And all human forms of love, when they rightly represent your love, do just that. They represent your love. They represent the love you desire to have in us. And so as much as that is the case, there's a parallel between the covenant of marriage and the new covenant available in Christ. The one that Jesus offers is an invitation right here in this upper room and invites us into, not just to explore forgiveness, not just to re be remade in the image of Christ, but into an enduring and loving relationship of unity with God himself. And we thank you for that reality. And we recognize, Lord, that we live lives that sometimes rightly represent that and often do not. But I pray, Lord, again, we would see that what you've offered in your design for marriage is so much better than what we think. We take our plans for marriage and we, we invite God into them and say, God, you bring about what I want to see in my marriage, but that's not how it works. You didn't come to build our kingdom, but to offer us a better one. And I pray that we would accept that invitation for those who are married here, that we would accept it in our own marriages. For those who uh, will marry, Lord, that they would, uh, would understand this and pursue this from day one. And for all of us, Lord, that we would pursue this type of relationship that you've made available to us where we can be fully vulnerable and unashamed. And where we can enter into a relationship with you a one of a constant and overflowing and deepening exchange of love. I pray this.